Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. There's an established history of using the genres of science fiction and fantasy to reflect real-world issues, often using the high concepts of space, cyborgs and magic to really explore the ethics and debate on things like slavery, class divide and political injustice. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Jay Kristoff. Jay is the author of the Lotus War and Nevernight series, and with co-author Amy Kaufman, has completely changed the landscape of young adult fiction with the recent Illuminae series. In our discussion, we look at how the worlds of Asimov, Ellison and Gibson have set Kristoff down this dark path of new science fiction and fantasy work. Hello, Jay. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Now, Jay, you have an astrophysicist on speed dial when writing your books. Tell me, why is science so important to your science fiction? I mean, she's not actually on speed dial. She's on email. Uh, But I'm of the firm belief that audiences will go with you on a central conceit in a science fiction novel. So, you know, the one you're talking about, Illuminae, the central conceit of that is that humanity can travel through wormholes. We don't actually know what wormholes are or how they work or whether travel through them is at all possible. But it was very important to us around that central conceit to build a believable universe. You know, it doesn't matter if you're 500 years in the future, the laws of physics are not going to change. And so we wanted to, yeah, we wanted to have an element of science in our science fiction. So a lot of our misconceptions and preconceptions about sci-fi were totally blown after our first edit letter, I guess you could call it, from our astrophysicist, because a lot of what Amy and I had learned about science fiction we got from Star Trek and Star Wars and Aliens and all those films where they actually sacrifice fact for the sake of spectacle. And our letter from our astrophysicist was 25 pages long. (laughs) I reckon about half of it was in all caps because she has particular bugbears that infuriate her as an actual scientist, and we had triggered most of those. So, yeah, she, she was... Pretty upset with us in a funny way. Uh, but we got it right in the end. That was important to us. And we actually learned, we went over to JPL, Jet Propulsion Labs, which is the NASA labs on the West Coast. And we have a reader there named Marguerite, who's a, she's a huge fan. She organized the tour for us. And apparently a lot of the astrophysicists and rocket scientists at JPL had read the series because she'd kind of pimped it on them. And they couldn't find any mistakes in there as far as our physics went. So that was kind of a golden day for us. Wow, that's like a big tick from the boffins. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't us. We we had an astrophysicist vet the novel for us. So it's not like we were smart. We just listened to what we were told. Well, there's, I think there's something like 200,000 million uh, suns or stars within the Milky Way itself. Now, you chose to put three of them all together for the Nevernight series, which right. is obviously it's a planet which has three suns. There yeah. is Nevernight. You see what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you went and you, didn't you get her to actually construct an entire galaxy to prove that it was possible? Oh, not a galaxy. She just constructed the system. So she and her partner had sat down and crunched the maths because I described the world that I wanted and asked if it was possible. So I wanted a world in which for around two and a half years at a stretch, it's daytime, and then for around three weeks at a stretch, the suns are down and it's just dark. And I didn't even know that was possible or not. So I had my friend 
go away with her partner. They're both mathematical geniuses and crunch the figures and see if they could build a star system that worked that way. And they came back a couple of weeks later and said, yeah, here it is. Sent me a ream of Excel spreadsheets that kind of tracked the movement and duration of each sunrise and sunset and gave me a little diagram that laid it all out and away I went. Well, so so you haven't been turned away by the fact that science is keeping you to the to its rules and regulations and laws. No, no, I mean I I request that a system be custom built for me, so I have a pretty good job. I actually named the goddess of fire after my astrophysicist in the Nevernight books. Her name is Sana. Uh, because I figure she did all this work for me. The least I could do is make her a goddess. Oh, that's very sweet. That's yeah. very sweet. Whereas you're not so comforting to yourself, though, because in the first book of the Illuminae series, which you've written, um, I'm very pleased to be speaking to you today because according to the casualty list on page dead. 56, you are dead. Yes, that was Amy. We killed ourselves. <laughs> well, future versions of us, I guess. The books are set 500 years in the future, so unless we've somehow cloned ourselves or figured out the secrets to immortality, they're just people who happen to share our names. Well, we killed George R. R. Martin as well. I think we killed Lainey Taylor, who's a YA author and buddy of ours. We killed Lee Bardugo, who's another buddy of ours. That was just our way of the authors that we killed off in that book and subsequent books in the Illuminae Files was just our way of saying thanks to all the people that were cool to us over the journey, you know, people who burbed the books or read it for us early or just were nice to us when we were touring around America for the first time. So whenever we kill someone, we do it with love as a general rule. It has expanded, though, to the point now where there's over-demand to be actually on your casualty list. It wasn't with the, the final book in the series, Obsidia, yeah. of which that you actually had to extend the page numbers or something along those lines. Well, we held a, we held a competition for readers uh, to get their names in what was essentially a big pit full of dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we have some amazing and enthusiastic readers, yeah. Um, and so we, we ran a pre-order campaign, and if you pre-ordered the book, you could send us your details, and through random number generator process, if you were lucky enough to get killed, you got buried in a pit on a frozen planet at the butt end of the galaxy. Wow. Yeah. But I don't think we had to actually extend the page count. I think we had to cut down the page count by one double page spread on Obsidio because it was just a weird number, and things didn't match up quite right, so we had to cut one page. I imagine being a graphic designer or coming from a graphic design base background because you were a creative director both in an agency and in-house, you actually understand more than others what it takes when someone says, no, no, you have to do everything by fours. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get you it. get it. Yeah, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a creative director. I was an art director. I, I didn't get quite that high up in the agency chain. But yeah, I, I do speak the language of art director. And that was really helpful in terms of communicating directly with our graphic designer on Illuminae because... Obviously, she was doing things that a regular book designer doesn't have to do. And I had a pretty clear picture of the way a lot of it was supposed to look. So oftentimes, I would just bash something together on Photoshop and send it to her and show her rather than try and tell her what I wanted and then go back and forth seven or eight times. So yeah, that was actually really good grounding for the, the building of that trilogy. How do you think it actually, that background informed just the writing process, not only as a, as a co-writer with Amy on, on the Illuminae series and the next series, I think it's the Andromeda series you're working on currently, mm -hmm. but also for yourself, that when working with the publishing industry, you do have to kill your darlings. You do have to make changes. You do get oh, constant yeah. feedback, yep. which those who haven't had an experience such as yours in, in, in the art space where you are dealing with, let's face it, all clients aren't great. Clients are the worst. <laughs> Clients are the worst. I'm glad I don't have to work with them anymore. Uh, yeah, it, it is really good. It's a great proving ground for, yeah, like you're saying, 
taking criticism, not being precious about any particular part that you've built. I mean, when you're co-authoring with someone, if your co-author doesn't like something that you've done, you'd have to have a pretty good reason if they're violently opposed to it being included. So, yeah, it's good to not to be able to leave your ego at the door in terms of what you created. Um, but, yeah, in, even in terms of co-authoring as well, because creatives work in pairs. An art director will work with a copywriter. So for my day job, you know, for 12, 13 years, I sat in a room with another creative and we just bounced ideas off each other all day. And that's basically what being a co-author is about. Amy and I will go out to a pub together and sit back and kick ideas around for most of the day. And at the end of that, we'll have about 100 pages of plot worked out. But over the course of that, we'll come up with ideas that the other one doesn't like. And so we have to sit ego aside and let our darlings die on the pub floor and just roll on. So, yeah, working in advertising was actually a strangely beneficial proving ground for for being a co-author. Do you use any of those techniques that you would normally do when developing an ad campaign or a particular look and feel where you've got mood boards, you've got mood boards, you've got key messages, you've got sort of, you know, uh, colors and fonts you can use. Does any do you develop any of that up before you start writing any of your projects? Uh, I'm a pretty visual thinker, so I I will mood board. Um, I don't really get any say over the cover design, but uh, in terms of technique, yeah, there's there's a technique. I'm not even sure people use it anymore. But when we were first coming out, when we were baby advertising guys, uh, we got taught the 50 idea technique. So you would take you know three or four sheets of A3 layout paper, you would draw 50 boxes on them, and you would do 50 ideas. And usually the first three or four ideas are pretty good, and then they get progressively worse until they're absolutely awful. And around idea 45 to 50, when you've completely drained the well and have got all the garbage out of your system, you'll often start thinking in different ways. So, yeah, the the 50 idea rule is one that I often use when I'm particularly when I'm blocked or I'm not sure which way the story will go. I'll go away and just brainstorm as many ideas as I possibly can and usually the one I end up going with is one of the ones that I think of last. How did that filter sort of affect the most recent book which is Lifelike because you started working on this around 2013 so it's it's had a an odd life in the fact that it also originally commenced as a I think a steampunk revolutionary Russia piece. It did yeah I actually started working on it when would it have been Probably 2010, actually. Oh, really? So around the time of Storm Dancer and, and yeah. Cold. So at yeah. the same time you were pitching those. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things they'll tell you when you're a baby author, when you first go out on sub, which is when your agent is sending out your manuscript to publishers in the hopes that they will buy it, uh, the thing that you get told is to work on your next book and pretend like the submission process isn't actually happening because if you let it, it will just consume your every waking thought. You'll just sit by your email browser clicking refresh over and over and slowly going mad. So... What they will tell you is work on a new book. And that book that I started working on while Stormdance was on sub was the original version of Lifelike. But back then, yeah, I was a little bit enamored of steampunk as a subgenre and I figured if Stormdance wasn't going to work, I would try and write another steampunk book. So Lifelike originally started in post-revolutionary 1917 Russia and it was going to be a retelling of the collapse of the Romanovs and, and Anastasia riff, basically. Well, a lot of that's still there. It's still there still as, there. as yeah, it's not as overt. It's kind, yeah. it's kind of background. It informs part of the background of the fall of the Monrova family. There, I mean, that's an anagram of Romanov, and a lot of the Monrova children have very similar names to the children of Tsar Nicholas II. So that still survived, uh, although it became more background noise. I think the dog 
His name was Kaiser in both versions because he was named after Kaiser Wilhelm, the German head of state back in World War I. Uh, and the names of the artificial humanoids, lifelikes, they were going to be called that in the original version as well. And everything else changed. So somehow along the way, we got from post-revolutionary Russia to post-collapse United States. Uh, yeah, but when my when the Lotus War got picked up, I had to put the project aside. And so I literally didn't think about it for kind of two years. And then I was kicking it around in my spare time. And over the course of those two years, somehow the idea had changed. And I wanted to write a little bit of a different novel. But yeah, some of the some of the skeleton remained. The actual story of the Romanovs, though, also continues after their death and the fall of the, the Russian Empire with the th- conspiracy theories around Anastasia. Anastasia, yeah. yeah. So has any of that remained? Because this is the first in a three-book series. Sure. Uh, I probably... Or am I probing too far? It's probably going into spoiler territory. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Yep. Yeah, because reading along, I'm like, at points, I was going, hey, why is this familiar? Why is this familiar? This name and all that. And then when you start, there is a joy in actually looking at the very significant influences on this book because it's been pitched as X-Men with a bit of Fury Road. Yeah, um, and Blade Runner. Blade yeah. Runner. But really, it's it's more overt than that. It's really the fall of the Russian Empire plus Pinocchio yeah. and a bit of Clockwork Orange. Yeah, pretty much. But <laughs> um, as soon as you start talking about the fall of the Russian Empire, if you, if you bring up Anastasia, uh, that can lead you very quickly to a spoilery conclusion, the same mm. as you start talking about Pinocchio as well. So we didn't talk about that overtly and we thought we would leave it up for readers to discover as they went. Um, but one, one of my beta, beta readers on the project was Lainey Taylor, the author of Daughter of Smoke and Bone. And I remember getting a message from her kind of in all caps. She was three quarters of the way through reading the book and her daughter just happened to put on Anastasia in the background as Lainey was sitting on the couch reading the book and that was what made her click. And she that wrote to me, trigger. oh, my God, this is an Anastasia retelling. I feel so stupid now. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, hopefully it's it's subtle enough for you to get that oh moment, that that moment of revelation, and feel clever when you figure it out. Yeah, I think nothing's lost from the, unless you are a historian. There is nothing lost by sort of connecting the two at all, because I, I found it it enhanced the story as you go along. Sure. One of the parts of world building, though, in science fiction is also often not only the, the landscape, who the characters are, but the language components that people use. And this one, probably more so than your other books, has a very distinctive language. And that's why I mentioned Clockwork Orange. Because, yeah, I mean, sure. You refer to your fans as Droogs, yeah. yeah, which I'm always intrigued as to how many of your fans know where that comes from. A lot of people ask, yeah, really? not many of them. Yeah, I mean, it's an old book. It came out, oh, I can't remember, it was published like 74, I think. Um, and you know, the film came out in the late seventies, so it's more our era than the era of, I mean, most of my readers are kind of late teens, early twenties. So yeah, it's not surprising that they haven't been exposed to it. I mean, Neuromancer was another big influence on this book and no one even knows who William Gibson is anymore. Well, is it true that you go off and read that book every year? Yeah, no, no, I, I used to read it every year. I probably don't, it's probably been about 18 months since I read it. Um, but I used to read it every year. And Why? in terms of, I, I just love the book and I love the writing style. In terms of who I've been informed by stylistically, Gibson would probably be the biggest influence on me. Um, in what way is that cadence? Is it theme, yeah, tone? Yeah, uh, yeah. In, in terms of the way he structures paragraphs, in terms of the way he will change his tone depending on the mood of the scene, the way he writes action scenes. 
um, the way he will he'll invent slang terms and just throw them at you and hope you get them through context rather than taking it aside to explain what it is he's talking about. Yeah, he, he was a big influence on me. He still is today. He's one of the few writers that I would just lose my bottle if I met in real life. Him and Stephen King, I would just I would turn into a puddle on the floor, I think. Well, you were reading Stephen King at a very young age, at about 10. Probably too young. <laughs> Tell me about this news agency that you used to visit. Oh, yeah. So uh, I wish I knew the guy's name uh, to this day because I would thank him at the back of every book that I ever wrote. But my mother used to do the grocery shopping and she would drop me off at the news agent when she went in because she figured having a 10-year-old boy follow her around the supermarket would be boring for all concerns. So she just dropped me off at this news agent and would go and do the shopping and I would plant myself in the middle of the aisle. This is you know back in the 80s, so news agents still had big book sections. And I would take a Stephen King book off the shelf because Stephen King was the king back in the 80s. He would have his own section on the shelf and I would just start reading. Uh, and when mum came to pick me up at the end of the hour, I would take a bus ticket or a piece of paper. I would put it in the page that I was up to and I would hide my book because it was my book in my head at the back of the stack where no other customer would find it or buy it. And when I came back the next week, I would reach the back of the stack, take my book back and start reading where I left off. And not once, this went on for years. I read like Stephen King's entire back catalog. I'm a 10-year-old kid. And not once did the newsagent owner tell me, kid, this isn't a library, get the hell out. Or you're 10 years old, you should not be reading The Stand. He just let me do it. Um, and yeah, Stephen King informed me as a writer. Like he was one of, he was probably the first author I remember being into as, you know, a brand, you know, the idea that Stephen King was a concept rather than being into a particular series. He was an author that I was interested in whose work that I liked. And, you know, I, I read everything that he wrote back then. So, yeah, again, if I met him in real life, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I would. Were there any particular moments from books that just still sit with you? Because when we read at an early age, I was reading Ian Fleming in a similar style. Sure. And there's certain moments like the, the torture scene in Casino Royale. Oh, that yeah. Just yeah, sits that with rope. Me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I never looked at a skipping rope the same way yeah, again no, as a small it's child. brutal. So is there anything from Stephen King's oeuvre that you sort of looked at then? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of lines in Salem's Lot. It's been, oh, God, it'd be 20 years since I read Salem's Lot, but there are still lines in there that I can remember. Um, there's a great scene where Father Callahan is confronted by the head vampire uh, and the vampire tells him to put his crucifix away. He's keeping the vampire at bay with the cross, you know, kind of back, back, foul beast. And the vampire says, well, if you're so strong in your faith, you don't need the crucifix, put it away. And you should be strong enough to keep me at bay just with the power of your faith. And Callahan he doubts himself and so the power of the cross begins to fade because it's powered by his faith and he succumbs to the vampire and the, and the vampire tells him the boy makes 10 of you false priest and he's talking about Mark Petrie who was the the kind of teenage protagonist of the book because he never Mark never doubted himself uh, and Mark was one of the first characters that I kind of saw myself in because he was a bit of a nerd bit of an outcast he was kind of into monsters and horror comic books and I was pretty much the same way, but he was also the kid who figured out what was happening in this town long before most of the adults did. So, uh, yeah, that, that line will stick with me forever. The boy makes 10 of you false priest. Wow. It, it's interesting looking at books like that because they, there, there wasn't a young adult section when you no, were reading not at, at all. that age. But, but so to find a hero, a hero of that nature who you could relate to in an adult book was almost like a drug because yeah. you start to go looking for it. It was pretty else. hard. Yeah, it, it's amazing now that you can walk into a bookstore and see 
row upon row of books written for teenagers because, yeah, it was pretty hard back then. I, I remember reading Robert Cormier as well, um, I Am the Cheese, that, that, that kind of had a teenage protagonist in it. And, you know, there was books like The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, which I'm sure every everyone our age probably read as well. But, yeah, they were few and far between. So it's really amazing to be part of an industry now that creates books because I remember what it was like when you discovered that character that you saw yourself in for the first time. And I get letters now, you know, amazing letters from people that tell me, you know, this is the book that turned me onto science fiction or this is the first time I saw myself in a book. And I remember what that was like for me at that age. So, yeah, that, that's the best part of my job by far. What differences do you see in the responsibility when writing for young, a young adult as opposed to books like the Nevernight series, which are more adult? They have sex and violence and they're more, more obvious. Yeah, they do. But I mean, there's a lot of teenage readers who read that series. And I was kind of conscious of that when I was writing Nevernight because I knew people would follow me from Illuminae, which is overtly a YA novel, into Nevernight, which is, it's pretty clearly an adult novel. So, I mean, that's the intent of that first page in Nevernight is to warn you away. Um, you know, it's called Caveat Emptor by Beware. And I'm trying to tell you that if you're a kid, this book isn't for you. Um, but in terms of I don't, I don't want to be an author who condescends just because my readers are younger. Um, there aren't many themes or kinds of stories that I will shy away from just because I'm writing for younger readers. I credit my readers with a lot of intelligence. Um, I think young people are probably far today far better read than I was at their age. Um, they're far more versed in the ways of the world. You know, they're, they're exposed to the world and the truths thereof in a way that I never was when I was that age. Um, they're bombarded by, you know, just the, the fact of being exposed to news through social media, for example. You know, an average teenager nowadays would know the political climate of the world and I had no idea what was happening in the world when I was 15 or 16. So, yeah, I, I credit teenagers with far more intelligence and I don't want to be someone who condescends to them. So in terms of content, you know, there are some publishers who will not publish books that have a lot of swearing in them and that is largely an imperative from librarians, uh, particularly in the United States. There are some libraries that just won't stock your book if it has curse words in them. So there's a kind of mercenary mercantile consideration in that if you're publishing for young adults you want your books carried in libraries and so publishers will tell you to tone down the swearing uh, and is that where you also come up with it builds it goes into the world building that we spoke of before which is you create your own language much like how the Battlestar Galactica TV show you oh, fracking frack. yeah, yeah sure you know and you've got fug and a few other things yeah uh, I mean fug is an insult but it, it's it's not so much a curse word we actually had a really interesting discussion with our editor on Amy and my new series, which was called The Andromeda Cycle. We've changed the title of that now because it was set in the Andromeda Galaxy and now it's set in the Milky Way. So calling it the Milky Way Cycle makes it sound like a chocolate bar <laughs> rather than an epic action adventure in space. But we had a debate. Sounds very lovely, though. Yeah, very the Milky Way Cycle. Yeah, it's <laughs> gentle and fluffy. Uh, but we had a discussion about whether or not we would invent swear words like Galactica did with Frack and it's actually really hard to think of one that sounds anything other than silly and so we thought we had come up with a few that that worked okay uh, and we bounced them off test audiences and we bounced them off our editor and she actually told them just make just make it real words real swear words we'll deal with it as we as we come well i guess um, the difficulty is that one word that we're all talking about um you know it can be used so perfectly as oh, a it's noun brilliant. a verb yeah it's, descriptive it's humorous it's in it's, all forms. it's exactly like the f-bomb but that is actually incredibly difficult to create so whoever wrote that 
initially um, they deserve a medal because yeah I've I have very rarely seen it done Galactica is one of the few instances I can think of where they invented a swear word that actually makes sense most of the time you just start sounding silly so yeah we had to we had to kill our fake swear words and we just put real swear words in there and we will let the chips fall where they may but I mean that was that was one of the jokes that we made at the start of the Illuminae files because we redacted all the swear words in that and that was partly informed by you know the hesitance of librarians to stock young adult books with swearing in it but it was partly us poking in fun at the notion that it's okay to have a book that's full of horrific violence like the hunger games for example that's a girl who gets dropped into a murder pit with 23 other kids and they'd kill each other that's the plot of that book and that movie and it's rated pg when it was made into a film that's perfectly okay but you can't say shit and you can't you can't have you can't show sex between two consenting adult partners you can't do that but it's okay to shoot somebody in the face it's okay to eviscerate someone that's perfectly fine yeah well i mean i suppose you look at american tv even on basic cable things like right. the walking dead you yeah can, just extraordinary violence yeah, but you can't show breasts nice. correct you know, yeah you'll yeah. get letters yeah you can't show a boob which is just so backwards to me um and to amy in particular so that that first page of illuminate was us poking fun i think the line is you know Sure, the story kicks off with the deaths of 20,000 people, but God forbid they'd be swearing in it. Um, so, yeah, that, that was us pointing the finger, I guess. I'd like to discuss then on this point, you put your books out to beta readers, those people who read them in the first instance for you, tell you how, how, they, how it's going, what they think, etc. But specifically on God's Grave, which is the sequel to Nevernight, you yep. went to Nick Stone, African-American author. Um, as a sensitivity reader, why yep. did you do that? Uh, Nick's a buddy of mine to start with, uh, and I'd been talking to her for like a year or so before. I got introduced to her, man, when would it have been? I think it was Yolfest back in like 2015 or 2016. Um, but there was there was a subtext about slavery in God's Grave. Um, the gladiati who are, you know, they're a gladiator analog. They are owned. They are human property, and they're forced to fight for the amusement of the crowd. And I understand that as an Australian, there are sensitivities about us, about slavery in America that I'm just not familiar with and just not equipped to pass, uh, as in P-A-R-S-E. Uh, and so I thought I would, I would lean upon the shoulders of someone who is more familiar with the social context of that discussion and who knows more about it than I do. Uh, and fortunately, she was she was great. There was very little that I needed to change and they were kind of tweaks. They were minor tweaks to language. But... It was still a worthwhile exercise in my eyes. Similarly, I had, I think, I mean, all my beta readers on that book were women to start with. I think two of them identify as pan, one of them identifies as bi, one of them identifies as gay, uh, and three of them are women of color. So I wanted to, I wanted to stress test that book because I was talking about some pretty heavy stuff and I am not equipped to look at those discussions in the way that someone who lives them are. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, I'm pretty pleased to report that I didn't have to change much at all, particularly in regards to the slavery issue and also Mia's sexuality, um, because she she engages in a FF relationship. So she comes to grips with the fact that well, she doesn't coming to grips with is the wrong way to put it, but she is bisexual and she starts a relationship with another girl. Uh, and you know, when a 40 year old dude is writing that, that can sometimes veer pretty sharply into lurid territory uh, and I I didn't want to go there so 
I wanted to make sure I hadn't. And yeah, pretty pleased to report that I didn't have to change much at all. But that was more a comfort thing for me. I didn't feel compelled to do it. I just, I wanted to do it because I'm really conscious of the fact that, you know, a teenage girl who's awakening to her sexuality may be seeing herself in this character for the first time. I've got letters to that effect. And so I want to, I want to treat that with the respect that it's due because I remember what it was like when I saw myself in the book for a first time. Um, you know, there's an extraordinary power and responsibility that comes with that power. So, uh, yeah, I'm pleased to report that I didn't have to change much at all. So that was a good day or a good couple of days. Lifelike also features a female protagonist. And with your beta readers being female, does that help you just ensure, not, that, not suggesting you would, but it helps ensure that you're not trying to attribute a female protagonist with male sort of tropes? Because there's this terrible tendency which is if you're going to have a female action star, that they need to behave in a masculine way. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I think it's incredibly helpful. I mean, my wife is my primary beta reader and she's one of the most intelligent and well-read women that I know. Uh, and, you know, just the, the fact of living with her uh, has kind of opened my eyes to some of the ways that I used to perceive women. Um, but, yeah, in terms of... Again, I, I don't get called on things very often. I'm kind of pleased to report. But yeah, having kind of five pretty well-read, fiercely intelligent and opinionated ladies look over your manuscript, you can be pretty sure at the end of that process that any of your nonsense has been kicked out of it. Um, but interestingly, like I don't get... I get asked the question about writing female characters a lot and I don't get asked questions about, say writing murderers, for example, which I also tend to do a lot, or getting asked about writing soldiers who are in frontline combat positions, asking people to put their lives in their hands and having the same asked of them. You know, those are experiences that I've never undergone. Um, but, you know, it's somehow accepted that's okay, but I get asked about how difficult it is to write female characters all the time, as if there's some kind of alchemy involved in it. But... I tend to ground my female characters in human truths. You know, as human beings, we are all looking for a place to belong and someone to love and some meanings in our lives. You know, those are human truths rather than gender-specific truths, and that's what I tend to try and ground all of my characters in. And, yeah, then it gets the smart ladies to read the book and tell me if I did anything wrong. Looking at you, Jay, I mean, there's a couple of key things that are quite obvious immediately is, is one, your height. Very tall. Very tall. Never played basketball. I think the answer needs to be appropriately tall. Yeah. Never have to justify it. Never justify it. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty difficult buying jeans, though. <laughs> uh, the other is that um, I'm now, I now understand why there was a bit of Twitter conversation every now and then. It's probably something that's burdened you ever since you decided to grow your goatee. But I was impressed to see that even your own father confused you with Dave Grohl yeah, back in did. 2011. He did. I, uh, this I actually to... just put some perspective around this. Dave <laughs> sure. Grohl is the, for those who don't know, Dave Grohl is the lead singer of the Foo Fighters. Yeah, former drummer of Nirvana, if you're really old. <laughs> um, yeah, so I had, I had some, my first ever author shots taken, uh, by a buddy of mine, a brilliant photographer named Chris Tovo. And I, we were down an alleyway. It's called ACDC Lane. It's in the center of Melbourne. Uh, and it's, it's home to a pretty infamous rock and roll bar called the Cherry Bar. And it just so happened that the Foo Fighters were on tour uh, that month, I think, in Melbourne. So the walls of the alley were plastered with Foo Fighters posters. And I remember when we were taking some of those photos, 
a guy from the cherry bar came up with like an armload of empties and almost crashed into the recycling <laughs> bin because he saw me and he saw the posters and saw a camera and thought, oh my God, here it is. But yeah, I, I put up those pictures on my blog and my dad had a look at them. My dad doesn't read my blog. Uh, he just looks at the pictures. Uh, that's the way he is. But he, yeah, he called me up. I was speaking to him and he said that I had put a picture of myself and Dave Grohl side by side. Uh, I think Dave was on the right and I was on the left and dad said, you should use the picture on the right. You look better in that one. <laughs> that's his own son. To, to his credit, he's, he's nearsighted, so he needs glasses. So maybe he wasn't wearing his glasses that day. He's probably also looking at it on an iPhone, so I'm, I'm making my old man look bad. Sorry, Dad. I have this hope that somewhere in the world, Dave Grohl's walked into a bookshop and someone's gone, Jake Oh, my Christoph. God, Jake Christoph. Yeah, I don't see that happening. <laughs> uh, you never know. You live in hope. Maybe one day. Maybe he'll tweet me about it. Yeah, that's right. Your right arm, you have on it the one, what seems to be your first tattoo, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it was your first tattoo and it's the Storm Dancer tattoo in celebration yeah. of the publication of your book. Yeah. So you, you're now getting up to about 12 books. So are you riddled with tattoos? No, I've, I'm, the plan was that I was going to get a tattoo for every series that I published and that is still the plan. I've just been really slack about it. So I have a, I have a tattoo for the Lotus War. I have a tattoo for Nevernight. Amy and I are planning on getting an Illuminate tattoo but... We have been trying to agree on a design that we can both get simultaneously. I think we're at the point now where we're just going to get separate designs, but we're going to get them done at the same place on the same day. And we just haven't got our act together on it. We've just been really slack. I can't even explain it. It's like Illumina came out in 2015. All three books are out. The series is done and we still haven't got the tats done yet. Uh, but I'm actually booked in with an awesome artist who lives over in Perth, actually, a dude named Jackson May. I'm booked in with him in October, and he's going to do a couple for me. I think he's going to do my the book formerly known as the Andromeda Cycle Tattoo, and I think he's going to do my lifelike one as well. So I've got to get my act together on an Illuminate one because you know that's the book that let me quit my day job. That's the book that made my career, and I still don't have a bloody tat for it. So, yeah, I need to get onto it. Well, I was going to ask you, Jan the week of January 30th, uh, 2014, seems to be the moment you turned in your job and became a professional writer. Oh, yeah. How did things change for you with the signing of Illuminate? Uh, I mean, initially, initially I was wrapping my head around it for a little while. Um, I slowly awakened to the fact that it was going to be a life-altering event kind of over the course of two months. And fortunately, I was, I was working a job which for a really long time had been really great. It was the kind of job that left me the energy at the end of the day to sit down with a laptop and write for kind of three or four hours. I also used to book a meeting room and just go in on my lunch break and write for an hour a day as well. So a lot of my earlier books were in part written at work. But I got a new manager. I wasn't getting along with that manager at all. Uh, and it just so happened around, around about the same time as that new manager came on board, we signed the Illuminate deal. So as things were going rapidly downhill at work, I was awakening to the fact that maybe I didn't need to work anymore. But I'm a pretty conservative, financially speaking, kind of guy. So the decision to actually pull the trigger on that took me a while to wrap my head around. I was planning to go through to the end of the financial year, but I only made it to the Australia Day weekend. And I came back after the long weekend on the Tuesday and... My boss started writing me and I just pulled the trigger. I, I think I had worded my wife up about a month before. I just said, sweetie, just so you know, any day could be the day I quit. 
one day you might come home from work and I'll be home early and I'm never going back. She's like, okay, no, that's fine. Uh, and and how, well, how did she respond to you on the day that you did it? She said, I'm proud of you, which was awesome. Yeah, I called her up. She was actually over in Perth. She was helping her dad move. Uh, and I called her up on the way home from work and said, I just did the deed. And yeah, she said she was proud of me. So that I married well. I chose well. <laughs> She's an amazing lady. But yeah, that was, that was a great feeling, um, both in the sense that I wasn't enjoying the job, but also this thing that I had been working towards for you know, probably five, six years Realistically speaking, I started writing with an aim to get published back in 2008. So it was something I'd been working for kind of seven years of my life and being in the position to actually do it as a job, it, it was a great moment. And there's not many artists in Australia who get to do that because we are, you know, we're a country of 24 million people. So it's very hard for people who make art for a living to actually do it for a living. They usually work a job and their art becomes their hobby that they do on the side. So... I'm very lucky to have been able to actually pull the trigger and do it every day. You know, my office is my lounge room now, so I I am I go to great lengths to never take that for granted. You've suggested that opening a new box of books when they've been published and they arrive at your front door is almost like opening a time capsule. Yeah. Because it takes you back to who you were, what you felt, what sort of a life you were living. Do you still get that when you look at your books on the stores or when you're signing them for people? Yeah, I do. Yeah, because I mean the the process of publishing is really quite slow and you know you start writing a book in 2018 even if everything goes to plan chances are it'll be 2020 before it actually sits on a shelf. And also going around on publicity for a book that's just come out is also a little bit like stepping back in time because you know I finished writing Life like probably in 2016, to tell you the truth. But yeah, uh, you you do remember a little bit about who you were and what you were going through when you wrote those books. Um you know, and you have particular fondness for certain books. Like, I think Amy and I will always have a fondness for Illuminae because it's the book that let us quit our day job, um, and that that was the book that really, truly, genuinely changed our lives. But yeah, every time you look at a book that you published five years ago, you think about you know, you you probably think about what you would have done differently, and you think about the kind of person you were and how it informed the work that you were doing. Uh, and the fact that you know life is a journey, and you should be learning ideally every day. But yeah, it, it's it's a strange sensation. How about when you look at other people's books? And I'll give you an example here. Something like Where the Wild Things Are, which yeah. is an important book to you. Yeah, I love it. My favorite book of all time, actually. Now, where does that take you, though, when you look at that? I mean, it takes me... There's, there's probably two places, really, in my life. Um, you know, I, I probably first read that book on play school when I was you know, four or five years old. Uh, and I fell in love with the art the illustrations you know Morris Sendak was an incredible illustrator and visually that was the first book I remember really falling in love with but as I got older I just kept a copy of it around in my house I began to study the depth of the story it's actually it's a story about the futility of anger ultimately how anger is a destructive emotion and how the journey that Max takes leads him to the conclusion that he would rather be home with the ones that he loves rather than being allowed to run around and do whatever he wants. That's that's an empty and ultimately hollow experience. So, yeah, it, I mean, I was a pretty angry young man at certain stages in my life. So, yeah, learning the futility of anger was a pretty valuable lesson. So I'm actually going to get a Max tattoo on my arm as well um, a little later this year uh, just, yeah, to, to keep him with me, keep, keep him reminding me. 
I want to take you back to something you wrote in 2012, which has always seemed to, seems to terrify authors when they look back at things they wrote. And this is on your blog, and mm-hmm. it's exactly this reference to where the wild things are, where you wrote, in 2012, I'm an angry person. I always have been, always will be. Whether it's loud and screaming or tucked away in some tiny corner, there is always a wild rumpus in my head. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And where are you now? Uh I mean, I have the best job I've ever had in my life. Uh, I am living the best life I could possibly be living. I am incredibly lucky to be doing what I do. Uh, my my life is amazing. I am yeah, I am living the dream, as my friends all tell me, and I'm I'm fully cognizant of that fact. I'm fully cognizant of everyone I know. I probably has the have the coolest job. I get to sit on my couch and tell stories about dragons and robots all day, and I pay my light bill with that. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm angry at the state of the world. I'm angry at the state of our politics. I'm angry at the state of the environment. I'm pissed off that 60% of the barrier reef is dead and it's never coming back and no one seems to care. I'm pissed off that I can make a joke about Kanye West on Twitter and I get a thousand likes and I talk about the fact that anthropomorphic climate change is real and it's actually going to mess us up unless we start trying to turn this ship around right now. And I don't get a single retweet. I get like three likes. No one seems to care about this thing that is going to kill us. So, yeah, that infuriates me. But at the same time, I'm incredibly lucky to be doing what I do. So I try and insert as much of my concerns into the books that I write. I don't want to be an author who's up on a pedestal or a soapbox kind of banging on a gavel and telling you how to think. But hopefully reading my books, you come away with questions uh, and question whether the way you thought before is actually the right way to think. I don't want to give you answers so much as the desire to ask questions of yourself. Well, lifelike seems to be built around the idea of choice and whether we have choice, whether what happens when choice is taken away from us, when we're programmed to do a certain thing or a certain live a certain lifestyle. Sure. Is that important to you? Is that part of this sort of need to try and get people to start asking better questions of themselves? I mean, the a lot of the questions I'm asking through the lifelike program and the creation of um, Myriad, the artificial intelligence that's at the heart of Babel, I'm kind of questioning the rightness of creating beings that can think for themselves that can self-actualize self-rationalize but are still created to be servants they're born into servitor roles i mean we are on the cusp of we well we have already created thinking machines now we are on the cusp of being able to create machines that can think of themselves that can identify me you know i think therefore i am Uh, and that's that's really me just questioning the morality of that creating a new race of servitors um, that are that are born into a bondage that they are aware of but can never ever change so yeah i mean that comes back to isaac asimov's three laws of robotics which you know i think that i think he wrote them in kind of 1942 um and they're still the foundation of most robotic technology development today which is a pretty extraordinary thought when you think about it a guy who made things up for a living actually laid down the foundation for what is one of the most innovative developments you know in human history but you know ultimately you create a robot that is bound by those three laws you are creating a servitor you're creating a slave so i'm i'm kind of kick, kicking the idea of the rightness of that around You've said that you don't like cliffhangers, but um, you keep writing in trilogies, young man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got to come. You've got to leave something 
for people to come back into the second book. But I mean, by cliffhangers, I mean I don't like leaving the immediate action unresolved in in the sense of a literal cliffhanger. You don't want to leave, you know, you take the Empire Strikes Back. You don't want to leave Luke hanging off the bottom of Cloud City. You want to see him get rescued. But you need to leave certain questions unanswered in terms of the meta arc of the novel or else people probably aren't going to come back for book two or three. If you leave a very satisfying conclusion at the end of book one, why is anyone going to read book two? But yeah, I, I don't want to leave the hero literally dangling off the edge of a cliff and make you come back to book two to find out what happens. I'm, I'm so now tempted to finish this just by asking you a question and then cutting tape. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I do a I do a storytelling exercise on my school visits, uh, and we kind of identify the four key parts of story, character, setting, problem, solution, uh, and I sometimes do that by telling a story where I don't tell them the ending, uh, just to show you how infuriating <laughs> that is. Jay, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to have you here. You know, your success has been so well earned and just congratulations. It's stunning what you've been able to do as a consistent New York Times bestseller. And I'm really looking forward to what you do next. All right. Well, thanks very much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, Jay. Yes. And you can find Jay's book, Lifelike, in stores and online right now. You can also follow Jay at Mr. Christoph on Twitter. And you can follow us at ConversationsWW. You can leave a review for the show on iTunes as that helps people to find us. And you can also like us on Facebook. Not that I understand how to use Facebook. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very, very much for listening.